A transcript is available for free on our Patreon page. You can find the link in the episode's description. The deep oceans are mysterious and largely unexplored. They are one of the last wildernesses left on our planet, relatively untouched by humans. We know more about outer space than we do about the ocean depths on our own planet. But in recent years, the interest around the deep seas has been increasing, especially the opportunity to make money from them. Huge reserves of valuable materials, like copper and cobalt, lie across the deep seabed. These materials are in high demand because they are needed to create electronic devices like phones, computers, solar panels and electric cars. As reserves of these materials run out on land, big business is looking towards their next source, and they are exploring the possibility of mining the deep seas. Many countries like France, Canada, Chile and New Zealand have already called for a pause or ban to stop deep sea mining before it ever starts. But if these minerals could help us to produce more renewables and electric cars, why are countries against it? Well, a new study published by scientists from Costa Rica shows us one of the main reasons why. They discovered something groundbreaking in the deep oceans. Their research ship explored an area of the deep seas that is off the west coast of Costa Rica, called Dorado Outcrop. At hydrothermal vents, which are almost like underwater volcanoes, their underwater research machine found an octopus nursery, where pregnant octopuses come to brood their eggs, a bit like how chickens protect their eggs before they hatch. Ten years ago, a previous research trip noticed brooding octopuses in this area, but this time the scientists also saw something else images of baby octopuses. This confirms that the two sites they explored are octopus nurseries, a crucial habitat for the life cycle and survival of octopuses. And this is a really rare thing to find because we have only discovered one other deep sea octopus nursery in the world. Scientists know very little about the huge diversity of species that live in the deep seas. In fact, they think that the octopuses in Dorado outcrop are probably a new species. And this highlights one of the most important reasons why the deep seas need protection from destructive mining practices. There is still so much that we don't know about them. Mining practices inevitably have an impact on their surroundings. But the deep sea is a habitat that we don't fully understand yet. By allowing companies the green light to start mining, it is risking the destruction of unique ecosystems that have evolved for millions of years. Ecosystems that we don't even know exist. That's part of why research like the Costa Rica expedition is vital. Dorado outcrop is currently unprotected from deep sea mining. By learning more about what is really down there, scientists hope to inform policymakers before it's too late. We hear a lot about the heavy environmental impact of meat production, but studies also confirm that it is urgent to reduce our global consumption of dairy. Dairy milk mostly comes from cows. This means that its production leads to deforestation, to create land for the cows and to grow their feed. Cows also emit large amounts of methane, a greenhouse gas that is 28 times more potent than carbon dioxide. In fact, according to a study by the University of Oxford, a single glass of dairy milk produces three times more greenhouse gases than a glass of plant-based milk. And that's not all, it also takes up nine times more land than plant-based alternatives. Fortunately, many supermarkets now offer a large range of options when it comes to plant milk. Almond, soya, oat, coconut, rice, beans, hemp, cashew, hazelnut, and many more. But are these alternatives all equal when it comes to their impact on the environment? 
Let's start with rice milk. Rice milk doesn't offer much in terms of nutrition, and it also emits more greenhouse gases than any other plant milk. That's because a bacteria that breeds in rice paddies releases methane into the atmosphere. And a lot of fertilizers used in the production pollute waterways. A good way to avoid that is to choose organic rice milk. This way, you can support productions that don't use fertilizers or pesticides. What about coconut milk? Well, with the increasing global demand for coconut milk, workers in poor regions in Southeast Asia or India are being exploited and rainforests destroyed. So to make sure you don't take part in this exploitation, you can opt for coconut products certified fair trade. Another very popular option is almond milk. Almond trees don't require a lot of farmland, but they need more water than any other plant-based milk. And it's a big problem as a large part of its production is made in California, a state that already goes through severe droughts. According to the Oxford study, producing a glass of almond milk requires 73 liters of water. And that's not all. A recent investigation from The Guardian revealed the link between the industrialized almond industry in California and the deaths of 50 billion commercial bees. These deaths are mostly due to the heavy use of pesticides in almond production. But if you still want to enjoy some almond milk on occasion, the most sustainable way to do this is again to pick organic options from smaller scale productions. At that point, you might be thinking, all right, that's nice, but organic almond milk is really pricey. That's true. And so a way to enjoy some nice organic almond milk for a smaller price is to make your own. You can find some tutorials online to find out how to make your own organic almond milk. And for a more eco-friendly nut milk, hazelnut milk is a good option. Hazelnuts are pollinated by the wind and not by commercial honeybees. And they grow in wetter climates, which means that they can meet their need for water through rainfall instead of irrigation. More difficult to find, hemp milk and flax milk are really good options. Hemp and flax are not only sustainable, they are also rich in protein and full of vitamins. Hemp is a fast-growing and carbon-negative crop that grows very easily without the need for chemical use. And flax doesn't require a lot of land or water and no need for pesticides, it's naturally resistant to pests. What if you can't find hemp milk or flax milk? No worries, you've got oat milk. Oats are produced in cooler climates, and so they're not linked to deforestation in developing countries in the global south. But once again, it's important to buy it organic to avoid exposure to glyphosate, a chemical herbicide. A study by the Environmental Working Group found glyphosate in all foods containing conventionally grown oats. And on top of posing a risk to human health, glyphosate threatens many living species. Another good option is soy milk. Not only does it offer a protein content comparable to dairy, it is also very sustainable. Soy has a bad reputation though. It has a relatively high concentration of certain hormones, but in reality you would have to consume a very large amount for it to be a problem. Recent studies have proven that eating moderate quantities of soy is very healthy. And some skeptics might say that soy production leads to the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest, but soy is massively grown for the production of meat and dairy. Almost 80% of soybean crop is produced to feed livestock. To sum up, any plant milk is better than dairy milk. To minimize your impact, go for organic options. And when it comes to coconut milk, make sure it's certified fair trade. If you want to opt for the most eco-friendly options, you can choose oat, hemp, flax, hazelnut or soy milk. Almond, coconut and rice milk should probably be for more occasional consumption. 
For our next story, let's talk about the technology that you are listening to this podcast on right now. Gadgets like phones, computers, chargers, TVs, washing machines, toasters and many other electronics have completely transformed the way we live our lives. But as the number of devices around the world skyrockets, there has also been a surge in the number of devices that go to waste. It's been nicknamed electronic waste or e-waste. The World Health Organization, or WHO, estimates that in 2022, 60 million tonnes of e-waste was created globally. Part of that waste is mobile phones. Roughly 5 billion were thrown away in 2022. E-waste is a particularly tricky problem because it's not just about the overwhelming amount of rubbish, it's also about the type of rubbish. You see, electronics contain many different chemicals and substances that can be toxic if they leach into the environment. Workers trying to recover materials from e-waste can be exposed to as many as 1,000 harmful substances, including mercury, lead and nickel. And landfills of e-waste risk leaching these hazardous substances into the soil and groundwater too. And sadly, that is often what happens with e-waste. Countries from the global north, like the UK, can't keep up with the massive amount of e-waste that they are creating. So they export their rubbish to other countries in Asia or Africa, where workers try to salvage what they can from the toxic dump. Only about 17% of the world's e-waste is properly recycled. And it's important that we recover these valuable materials from electronics, because they can be used again instead of mining for new materials, which will eventually run out. But because of the dangers of e-waste, this recycling needs to be done in a safe and responsible way. So even though we rely on our electronics, it's clearly a huge problem to deal with them. Is there anything we can do as individuals, or are we stuck in a much bigger issue? Well, one thing is to make our devices last longer so that we don't throw them away as much. And there are a few tips to help you do this. Firstly, taking good care of our devices is really useful. Regularly wipe off the dust because it can get into the console and make it run slower. Use a case to protect it and don't overcharge your devices because that's worse for the battery. So aim to unplug the charger as soon as your device reaches 100%. And with your charging cables, avoid bending or stretching them to stop them from becoming damaged. Try to use your older devices like phones, computers and video games for longer instead of rushing to buy the latest release. Also, dig out those old devices that are not being used anymore and consider selling them or recycling them at a proper electronic disposal scheme. Most of us probably have an old phone or two sat in the drawer, myself included. Surprisingly, a lot of e-waste is actually items that aren't completely ruined. They just need repairing. Big tech companies are guilty of something called designing for the dump, which is when they purposely use designs that will break fairly quickly because this lets them sell more products and make more money. And while we need governments to enforce stricter regulations to stop companies from doing this, there are also inspiring schemes that are working to fix this problem too. One example of a repair scheme is the Restart Project. It started in 2013 because the founders were fed up with this design for the dump model that causes electronics to break quickly and become e-waste. So they organised repair cafes in public places to bring together people who have devices that need fixing and engineers or technicians that know how to fix them. Anyone can attend these events and bring their broken items with them, where it will be fixed for free. By making it easier for people to get their devices repaired, they are helping to reduce the amount of e-waste created, and they're also creating a community atmosphere at the same time. The initiative started in the UK, and it has now spread to other countries in Europe and even Australia. So if you have a broken electronic device, it might be worth trying to fix it before you throw it away. We'll put a link for the Restart project in the episode transcript, which you can find in the description. 
Every week we finish with a pretty amazing fact about our planet, a little planet wonder. In orcas family groups called pods, it seems that it might be the females who are in charge. Orcas, or killer whales as they are sometimes nicknamed, are one of the few species in the world where the females keep living even after they become too old to reproduce. Humans and a few types of whales, including orcas, are the only species where we see this in the animal kingdom. Women go through the menopause and live for many years afterwards. Similarly, most female orcas in the wild live an average of 22 years after they have gone through the menopause, up to an impressive age of 90 years old. This might seem a bit counterintuitive at first glance, and it has puzzled scientists for a long time. They think there is an evolutionary reason behind it. Older female orcas act as the matriarchs of the group. They share invaluable wisdom with their family group, things like hunting techniques. A new study also found that they protect their sons from being attacked by other groups of orcas. In pods with a matriarch, the sons had less scratch marks on them than pods without a matriarch. So it seems that from a survival standpoint, the knowledge and protection that grandmother orcas give their pods are even more important than having more offspring. Planet Now is a Kibo production created by Abigail Wilkin and me, Nagisa Morimoto. If you would like to help us present more stories like these, please check out the Patreon link in the episode description. You can also support us by leaving a review and sharing this podcast with your close ones. And don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss out on next week's episode. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you soon.